Please open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning. And I encourage you to take out uh, the sheet, the note sheet you were handed when you came in. If, if you didn't get a copy of that, I'd still encourage you to jot some things down because our grace gathering at, at our, after our meal this morning um, is going to have a point of discussion about what we're going to talk about from 1 Peter chapter 1. So you'll want to have something to jot a few things down. 1 Peter chapter 1. Here we are, beginning of June. We made it to June. Man, it feels like it was just winter, right? And, well, last week melted all that away. 80 degrees, almost 90. Um, over 90 some of the days. So the last thing on your mind as we turn this corner into the month that births summer, the last thing on your mind is Christmas, Right? I mean, you better, in, in one more month, we're closer to Christmas, the next one, than the last one. Not to put you into a point of stress this morning, but uh, I want you to think about Christmas for a moment. Because we have to admit something. When we get together for the holidays, for Christmas, and we have our, not only our get-togethers as a church, but with our families, there's some f- Christmas food that some of you don't like at all. And you only have to worry about that food when it's Christmas, once a year. There are some people in this room who don't like fruitcakes. Um, you don't like, you don't, they don't make sense to you, so why would I eat it, right? There are some of you that don't like, I've, I've heard of this, candy canes. You like what they look like, but you, you can only do one a season and then you're done. Some of you, and I don't understand this one at all, don't enjoy eggnog. It's just milk with a little sneeze in it, right? Some of you don't like sweet potatoes. Some of you don't like, and I don't understand this one, shoe fly pie. I love shoe fly pie. I like mine dry, but I'll eat it either way. Some of you don't like pumpkin pie. As we come to the holidays... Every one of us has some stuff that we clear, we stay clear from when it comes to food. But we only have to worry about that food once a year at Christmas. But I want you to keep your mind in Christmas for a moment because there's another dynamic that happens at Christmas. It's not that you don't enjoy, it's not only that you don't enjoy some of the Christmas food at Christmas, but you don't enjoy all the people at Christmas. There are some people you might tolerate that you only see at Christmas. And even that, in itself, is a trial for you. But holiday friends and family that you don't like isn't something we giggle about. You have faces in your mind now of folks that you just have to endure at Christmas. You just have to tolerate I want you to come back to the, to the hot June morning now, away from Christmas. But I want you to still be thinking of those faces. What's sad is that believers like us and churches like ours cannot like some people, other believers, all year long. It's not just a Christmas thing. There's reality as it is there are some people 
there are some believers that other believers, in an, even in a church like us, we're not drawn to and we just don't like. As a matter of fact, we'd never say this out loud, but we might confide with a friend and definitely entertain the thought over and over that it is impossible even for you to love that person. And that's the word you use, impossible. Say, what do you mean? Well, let me give you some good reasons to not like some other Christians that might even be in the same church right here this morning. I need to give you some good reasons not to like them. First of all, there are different appearances. They have a different appearance than you. It might be an issue of their health, their shape, their style, or even the social strata they come from. That's one reason not to like them, right? Another reason not to like them is because they have different quirks from yours. They have a different personality. Some are outgoing too much so. Others are are introvert and they like to hide away, it seems, and you never see them. That's a reason not to like someone, right? It could be that they have different preferences from you. It might be an issue of music. It might be an issue, listen, of how we handled COVID. It might be an issue, a different preference of politics. Their bullet list doesn't match up perfectly with you. It might be even their their understanding and, and response to negatively or positively of the Second Amendment. Let's just say it, because the bumper stickers are out there. That's reason enough not to like another Christian, right? And by the way, let me just say, as I mentioned those preferences, that another word I could use is idolatry. Because idolatry is, is, is betrayed whenever we get upset because we can't have something or control something. So they have different idols from you. Another reason not to like other believers is because they have a different upbringing from you. That's a good reason. They had different parents or a different experience with their parents. They had good parents. They had painful parents. But it's just different from you, and you don't understand that, so don't like them. Another reason not to like other believers in churches like this is because they have different pasts than you do. They have different baggage in their story than you do. They have different sins that they are all too familiar with. They have sunk down into a different mire that the gospel had to rescue them from. And it's different than your story, so don't like them. You don't have enough reasons yet to not like another Christian in a church like this? Maybe it's because you have different salvation testimonies. Maybe you were saved when you were young and they were saved late in life. Maybe they were saved from a dark place, but you were gently saved in the Sunday school hall of the children's ministry of an independent fundamental Baptist church. That's a reason not to like them. Another reason not to like them is because they run with different crowds. They run with different crowds when they're here at church, and a crowd that you're just like, I don't mix with them. Or they run with different crowds and have to work in different scenarios 
when they're away from the church that you would never be caught dead with. So don't like them. Another reason, they might have different hygiene than you. Sometimes this is by choice. Sometimes it is by neglect. Sometimes it's by necessity. They might have different lusts and struggles than you do. Oh, we all have them. James said in James chapter 1 that we have our own unique desires, our own unique battles. And theirs might be in a big public sin category where ours is equally as wicked, but it's something locked away in our mind in the privacy of our heart. Another reason not to like them is because there's a different depth to them in you. It might be a different depth intellectually. It might be a different depth theologically. It might even be a different depth when it comes to literary knowledge. Have I given you enough reason not to like another believer in this church? Someone says it is impossible to love them. And you might be reaching a faulty conclusion or have already reached it before this sermon introduction. You mean I have to love all Christians? It's impossible. You mean I have to move towards towards these kind of people that are so different from me? I have to move towards them intentionally, not just tolerate them? Not just be aware of them. I have to move towards them. Listen, even if they're not moving towards me, you're talking a unilateral love? I am. And I'm reading a text from Peter's pen this morning that's going to call you to this unilateral love that you give, that you initiate, even if you get nothing in return. No matter how unlovable or unlikable someone may be in the body of Christ. You say, that's impossible. Well, I want to talk to you right now if you're struggling with that word impossible. One of my favorite writers and and a man that's impacted me like few others in my life is a guy who's in heaven now. He's been in heaven a few years. His name's Jay Adams. Dr. J. Adams is the one that is considered the father of the biblical counseling movement. I don't think that's accurate because the Bible was teaching biblical counseling since it's been the Bible. (laughs) But he helped call us back to it. And J. Adams, in his book, it's a marriage book. It's called Christian Living in the Home. J. Adams throws down the gauntlet on those of us that struggle by saying it's impossible to love others in the church. Listen to J. Adams' words. Few things are sapping the strength of the church of Jesus Christ more than the unreconciled state of so many believers. So many have matters deeply embedded in their craws, like iron wedges forced between themselves and other Christians. They can't walk together because they do not agree. And when they should be marching side by side through this world, taking men captive for Jesus Christ, instead they are acting instead like an army 
that has been routed and scattered and whose troops in their confusion have begun fighting among themselves. Nothing is sapping the church of Christ of her strength so much as these unresolved problems, these loose ends among believing Christians that have never been tied up. There's no excuse for this sad condition. For the Bible does not allow for loose ends. God wants no loose ends. End quote. It's no surprise that Peter would agree with that statement. Peter, in preparing his readers for suffering of all stripes, from all directions, from the family through the government, through the culture, it's coming, he's saying. And Peter, in the text we're going to look at this morning, is like, you need to get over the loose ends of not liking, of not physically and affectionately moving towards unlikable believers. You need to get over that because persecution is coming and we are all we got. And isn't it true what William MacDonald says in his commentary on this? He says, thinking of persecution and the importance of loving one another, he says, quote, under conditions of hardship, even trivial disagreements take on gigantic proportions. He's right. Our little quibbles, our little differences, when the pressure's on, become huge, listen, and become the justification for us to click away with only our friends and our generation. It's impossible. Listen. When you find it impossible to love another Christian, reboot your thoughts with four reminders from Peter's pen in this short text. Jot these down. The first reminder, when you think it's impossible to love and to move towards another believer, first of all, remember this. You both, you and that other Christian, you both needed rescue. Can we start there? You both needed rescue. In chapter 1 of Peter, go, join me in verse 22. He says, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls. Stop there. Since you, believers, have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls. Look at that phrase, the obedience of truth. What do you mean by that, Peter? What is the truth here? The truth here is not merely a maxim. It's not a principle. It's not a, a propositional statement. The truth in Peter's mind, when he says that phrase, the obedience of the truth, that truth is the gospel message that he has been writing about this whole first chapter of his epistle, starting with verse 1. He's talking about the preaching, the proclamation of eternal life. He's talking about the Father in eternity past setting his love on you and at a point in time opening your eyes so that you could be born again as you responded 
to the preaching of the truth of the gospel. The word truth in verse 22 is shorthand for the gospel of Jesus Christ that saved you. And so that makes this phrase very full of meaning, doesn't it? The obedience of truth. What does that phrase mean? It means this. When you had your eyes opened to the truthfulness of the gospel message, it birthed you, listen, to obey the gospel and not just obey the gospel once, but to come and enter into a life of obedience as a gospel person. It's interesting. Paul gets into this kind of language a lot as well in what he writes to the believers at Rome. Just listen. In Romans 1, verse 5, Paul writes, We have received grace and apostleship, listen, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. In other words, if someone, if someone is born again, if someone has been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus because of the mercies of God, that person has obeyed the gospel and has been birthed into a life of obedience. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter, 16, uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 16. In the negative, he says, they did not all heed or obey the good news. When the gospel is preached, there's only two responses. There's no passive response. It's either accept it and obey the gospel or reject it. There's no middle, ah, think about it. Thinking about it is rejecting it in that moment. In Romans 16, 26, a third time, Paul uses this, this concept, this wording. He says, but now it's manifested that by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to, here it is again, obedience of faith. You understand that when we share the gospel with someone, the gospel is not merely an invitation. You get that? The gospel is not merely a, a nudge of good advice. The gospel message is not a suggestion. The gospel message is a command to believe and turn. And it births you into a life of obedience. We're not, we don't go out and try to trick people into getting saved. We don't come into a room like this and try to um, model it after something in the culture so that we can trick people to come here and suddenly our Jesus isn't very confronting and he might be safe and I can add him into my life. And we trick you into getting saved and then break the news to you later that things got to be different. We just, we're just right out there with the gospel message. This culture is broken. It deserves the coming, the quick approaching wrath of God. God in his mercy sent his son Jesus to suffer on the cross for your sin if you believe in him. If you'll come to him. But you aren't just supposed to stare at this. You must repent 
You must believe. Repent of your sin. Believe that Christ died and rose again, according to the scriptures. You have to obey the gospel. The gospel is a command. Look at that phrase again. You have in obedience to the truth, as a result, purified your souls. What does that mean? This is an interesting participle. It's in the perfect tense. It means uh, an act done in the past has abiding results. It's completed in the past. It's not still being completed, this aspect. It's, it's done. When you come to Christ, it says your souls. Did you read that? Have been purified. What do you mean souls? It means the total you. It's the same use that we saw in souls in the end of verse 9. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. It, it, what goes on in the, in the inner man affects you in total. And we still struggle with, with our outer man, but even one day when our salvation is complete, we'll have a new body. This gospel message, which is a command that you obeyed, has transformed you. Now listen to me. It's transformed you in a way that you couldn't have done it yourself. I don't know how you lined, it up, lined up on those ten items of how you're different from everyone else. Those ten items of why you and I can excuse ourselves to not mingle with other believers. I don't know how you line up differently from other, someone else, but I know this. You and that other person that you struggled to love in the body of Christ both needed to be rescued equally. Because you couldn't save yourself. And when both of you came to Christ, you obeyed the gospel, and you entered into this life of obedience, you're standing now on ground that you don't deserve and you didn't find on your own. Both of you. I like what Peter, again, the author of this letter, what he said at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, when people were upset that Gentiles were now included in the church and the Jews were not a little put off by that. And listen to Peter's words that he spoke to the congregation at Jerusalem. He said, He, God, made no distinction between us and them, Jew and Gentile. He said this though, cleansing their hearts by faith. He says, Jew and Gentile alike needed to be rescued. Guess what? You and that person that turns your stomach both needed to be rescued. You can love them. You can love them. You both needed this rescue on your best day. If I were to stand both of you, you and that other person that grosses you out, if I were to stand you and that other person by the the water tower in Ypsilanti, downtown. And I were to go to meet you two there at the water tower and say, hey, I just got back from Alaska. Let me tell you about it. Got 400 pictures. Where do you want to start? I would no doubt start telling you at some point about Mount Denali, which is 23,210 feet tall. Tallest mountain uh, in North America. Takes a couple weeks to climb, my understanding. And uh, no matter what summer's going on in the valley, it's, it can get up to negative 40, negative 70 at the peak any day of the year. I saw that mountain on our trip from 60 miles away, and it was still towering 
So here we are at the water tower at Ypsilanti, and I tell you and that other person that grosses you up, that person you don't mind avoiding, you don't mind not pursuing, that, that person, and I put a rock in both your hands, and I'll say, okay, we're here at the water tower, I want you to throw this stone, and I want it to land on the top of Denali, four time zones away. Go. You, for, you throw first. See, that's ridiculous. I wouldn't get it across the avenue, No. Both of you would heave it as close, as hard as you could towards the northwest, but you won't get anywhere near Denali. One of you might throw it farther, but you're equally still in Michigan. That is you before you came to Christ. You are supposed to be righteous. But the Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You both are equally before Christ saved you, repulsive to a holy God, yet he came for you. You say, I can't, I can't love that person. I can't pursue that person. Really? Let me give you a second nudge, if you still think it's impossible. A second reminder to reboot your thinking. Number two, you both are facing the same direction. You both are facing the same direction. Now, as we're here in 1 Peter chapter 2, we, uh, we, we've been on a, quite a journey as a church in our study through this epistle. And already in this epistle, we have seen only three commands, three what we call imperative verbs. And, and with each imperative, with each command, Peter is corralling this church that's nervous because of persecution and they're splintered because of a lack of love for each other. So what he's doing is he's hurting them together, and he's taking their face and getting everyone to look in the same direction. How is he doing it? He's doing it with the commands. He's saying, look at the same thing. In verse 13, he says, you need to look ahead and have a hope. Therefore, verse 13, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Here's the command. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then you go down to the next couple of verses, and he gives a second command. He says, not only look for Christ's return and the consummation of your salvation, but as you do that, live a holy life. That's the second command. Verse 15, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves and all your behavior. And then there's a third command. And these are, these are standing on top of each other and, and, and extending out of each other. Someone who's looking for the return of Christ, someone who's growing in their own personal holiness, will be in awe of this God who's saved them, this Father who initiated their rescue. And we see that third command in verses 17 to 21, our last study of this, the end of verse 17 contains that verb, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. You see what he's doing? He's saying to his readers now, and listen, he's saying to churches like us with people like us, that we are to be facing the same direction, concerned about the same obedience of growing in hope, of growing in holiness, and growing in the fear of the Lord, we're facing the same direction. You say, I don't have anything in common with this person that grosses me out. Yes, you do. 
you have three commands. No matter how different you are from them, no matter how different your narrative is from theirs, no matter how they look, you are to be facing the same direction. I went to the ball fields yesterday afternoon. I took a break from study and went out there. Our men from our church were exhausted in the heat. They played three games back-to-back, triple header. And uh, they lost the first one, but uh, they won the, the second two games. And I just enjoyed it. I, I enjoy heckling them. I enjoy talking, yakking at them when they're in the dugout, and I'm sure they like it when I leave. But our guys are good. We're the reigning champs of our division, so everyone's out to get us. We like being that guy. But what would you think if you went out to the games next Saturday and our championship, our defending champion men's softball team took to the field against the best team in their division? And when they're on the defense out in the field, what would you do if you saw... Um, uh, Ernie Bowman playing shortstop, turning around with his back to the batter and just kind of talking to the left field guy during the pitch. What would you think if the catcher turned his back? Jeff was our catcher yesterday. If he turned his back and was talking to the, the Coca-Cola guy on the other side of the fence during the pitch when the guy's up to bat. What would you think if David Jesse playing first or whoever's at first is... Uh, is, is, is really just looking down at his phone. If all the members of our defense and our men's softball team, all of them are looking in different directions and the ball is pitched, that's dysfunctional. We won't be reigning champs for long. At some point, listen, the left fielder, the midfielder, the outfielder, the baseman, the shortstop, the pitcher, the catcher, everyone has to be looking at the same thing and that's home plate and the batter. Scripture says that's a reality for you and that other person in the church. You both are facing the same direction. Follow the commands. See, that's not enough yet to like them. Okay, I'll give you another one. Number three, you both hear the same command. You say, what's the difference between number two and three? Number two is where we've already come. There's a command to have your hope fixed and to be living a holy life and to be growing in the fear of the Lord. But now here's a new command that, listen, since you're both already facing the same direction, you're receiving this new command now. And it's in verse 22 again. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls, listen, for a sincere love of the brethren, as a result of that, Here's the next Greek command. Fervently love one another from the heart. There it is. You are facing the right direction, right? So you and that other person in your mind are hearing this command to love. There's no way of missing it, folks, if we're already facing this direction. We can't mess this one up. We can't miss it. That first command says, it talks about how we're looking forward. The next command is about looking in with holiness, for holiness. The next command is looking up in fear. And guess what this fourth command is now? Looking out with love. 
It's all that's left. As one commentator says, we are with this command moving from the three vertical commands to a horizontal command. Folks, this is a call, if I can put it in our vernacular today, to get beyond just social media posts. Posts that make you look like a loving person. In our culture's vernacular, this is a call for you to be moving beyond just giving a prayer request. It's a call for you even to get beyond a contentment and a smugness you might have because you can smile at anyone in the lobby as you walk by. This is a call for you to engage. It's a call for you to engage, not casually, not to tolerate, not to merely have an awareness of, but it's a command to pursue. John puts it this way in 1 John 3.18, Little children, let us not love with words or with tongue, but rather in deed and in truth. You say you're meddling because you mentioned social media. Well, allow me to meddle one more time because my wife's out of town. And I'll say this carefully. This call to love is a call for you to put your phone down. Well, I text people or I get texts and they're encouraging to me. I didn't say either of those are not true. But I'm telling you, even the Apostle John, when given the opportunity of sending words from a distant distance or seeing someone face-to-face, he'd always prefer face-to-face. He closes his second epistle with these words, I have many things to write to you, I have many things to text to you, but I do not want to do so with paper and ink, and I'll add with thumbs. But I hope to come to you and speak face-to-face so that your joy may be made full. Folks, I know we can love with our phones. I know we can send encouraging texts that come in the nick of time. I do that. I receive them. Yes. But for some reason, we've set a wall up after that effort, and we don't show up on porches or pursue people that might not even know us well with our face and our words. I'm aware of a church member who went through one of their darkest hours yesterday. And two members of our softball team, tired and heat-stroked after three games in the sun, after all that, they quietly showed up on a porch uninvited with food last night to that person. Yeah, that's it. You both are facing the same direction. And you both hear the same command. And this love is, is, is described as one that's driven by fervent love and a love that's from the heart. What does that mean? There's a genuineness to this. It's not just an external act. This external act is being done by a heart that's full of affection and grief and joy for this person. That's what it means 
to do it from the heart. It's not only genuine, but it's, it's without reserve. It says fervently. This is an interesting Greek word. It means to stretch out and strain to the point possibly of injury. I mean, you are, you are involved. It's not a drive-by act of kindness. I remember, you men remember Tom Kinsey. He's a Navy SEAL that came and spoke to us at our men's conference two years ago. Retired Navy SEAL. Retired one month before he was here speaking to our men. I remember once in Virginia Beach, I was at my son's basketball game with other parents at a church gymnasium, and, and we got word that my buddy's pickup truck had been broken into in the parking lot, and some things were taken of value from his car. Well, us guys went out, we guys went out to his truck, and, and, uh, and we're like, well, what do we do with this? We waited for the police officer, he took down the report, and we're all just gathered around that truck. Well, Kinsey drove up at that point. Tom Kinsey did. He had heard about it. He got out, came over to us, and immediately we were like, where did Tom go? The police officer's with us. The rest of us buds are here, but where did Tom Kinsey go? And we looked up, and he is over probably 150 yards away scanning the woods looking for any kind of... uh, tell of where this person would have gone because there were some high value things taken from that truck. And he was by himself without being told to, using all his seal stuff that we didn't even understand. We're not trained like that. But he, there was something going on with Tom that he didn't need us to tell him to do. And what he was doing, we wouldn't understand everything, but it was music to watch him work. Tom, if you will, was doing that fervently and from the heart. That's the kind of love you're called to towards that person in your mind this morning that grosses you out, even if you don't get anything in return. It's unilateral. It's interesting, Peter, the author of this, once heard his Lord give a story about a good Samaritan. Remember that in Luke chapter 10? No one told the good Samaritan to move towards that Jew, yet he did and wouldn't leave his side. That Jew never gave anything back to that good Samaritan. Peter remembers that story. Peter knows as he's calling believers then and here to this kind of love, it means that we're going to have to be in the proximity of the person. We're going to have to be perceptive to the needs of that person, patient with that person, and fleeing from pride in our own life. Peter will He's not done with this theme. When he gets to chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, he's going to say, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies so that God will be glorified. Paul agrees with Peter. In Romans 12, 9, he says, simply let love be without hypocrisy. John will write in 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Well, still impossible for me to love that person? And remember, love isn't toleration or a smile or awareness. 
It's a pursuit. Still impossible? Then we have one more reminder here. And here it is. You both have the same ability to obey. You both have the same ability to obey. Look at these final three verses of chapter 1. For, that should tell us, here it comes. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. See, what is he saying here? Well, we've already talked much in this series about born again. And again, this, is an, this participle, born again, having been born again, is, is in the perfect tense. It means it happened. You were regenerated by the Father, we saw in the beginning of this epistle. He initiated your new birth, and it has fully happened. It's fully operating right now in you and in that person. And he says, you are now living. You're living. See, what do you mean by that? It's a living birth. It's not perishable. It's not going to fade away. Sounds like the language he used in chapter 1, verse 4. This is the gospel. You say, well, what happened? So when, when you were born again, you and that other person... It was fully accomplished. Oh, sure, you're going to be glorified when you go to heaven when it's finished, but you are in God's family. You call him Father. And not only are you in Christ, listen, but Christ is in you. And this whole thing is alive. You say, because of what I brought to it? No, you brought nothing but death to it. And it's interesting. He refers to the gospel as seed. You are not born again of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. A lot of people want to, and some commentators say this seed here is the idea of, well, we threw the seed out like a farmer, and and, uh, and we'll see where some grows and some doesn't. Now, there's a parable along those lines. But there's there's another way to understand seed, and and I believe it's it's the correct way in this verse. That seed is referring to human seed. The seed of the man. What's the call to in this text? The call to is to love in an enormously unnormal way. And people back then and people now would object to that and have at least ten reasons why I don't have to love that person and pursue that particular person. And Peter's saying, you don't understand who you are. It's true that humans can love only to a degree, but what I'm calling you to, Peter says, is something that's supernatural. And he uses an illustration here of when a man and a woman come together, they produce another child, a child who is going to be just as weak as them. But that's not what happened when you were born again. The power of the gospel was a seed 
The Holy Spirit bringing the truth of the gospel transformed you and made you not just able to do human stuff, but supernatural stuff like this love. You say, really? He's not, he's not talking about just evangelism here at this point or inspiration or something? We can get some implications, but no, because when we get to chapter 2, verse 1, he's still talking about love. Verses 23 to 25 is talking about love. You have the ability to love like he is commanding you. I agree with Warren Wiersbe. If we try to build unity in the church on the basis of the first birth, we will fail. But if we build unity on the basis of the new birth, it will succeed. You see, this, this gospel that transfers you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the dear son, this gospel that transfers you is also a gospel that transforms you. And he quotes Isaiah 40, 6 through 8 in verse 24 to just remind you of the power of this word that saved you, the power of the gospel, and it lives forever. And since it lives forever, its effect in you will allow you to love that person and pursue them. Hmm. We need to be reminded probably at this point that since you're a believer and you have the Holy Spirit, you have the Spirit's fruit of love, Galatians 5.22. You have the wisdom from above, Genesis, in James chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, a wisdom that yields to others. You have a, a commonality of purpose. As, P, as Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, there's, there's one faith. What's true in Romans 5 is true in your heart, but also in that other person's heart. The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. That's true of you, and it's true of that other person. You say, I can't love them. Yes, you can. You both have the same ability to love isn't it true that we only love because we've been loved? 1 John 4.19 So let's just be a little more honest this morning. Then We can't say can't anymore. Let's be honest enough to say we won't. These are four reminders from Peter to make the impossible beautifully possible all year round you both needed rescue you both are facing the same direction you both hear the same command you both have the same ability to obey and by the way a little counseling side, side note here marriage counseling starts here too if that other person is your spouse don't say, I can't. God says, you must. So, Calvary Baptist Church of Ypsilanti is gripped by these reminders, I pray. And it's today that our love moves outside of Sundays to also include the Mondays through the Saturdays when there's no one whispering in your ear to do this and when no one can see it. You say, well, even with these reminders, there's still obstacles to loving other people. Well, spoiler alert, that's what the next three verses are going to cover. It's going to give you the how. 
But I want to conclude with some words that Peter, this author, heard one night. He was alone with Jesus and the other disciples, minus Judas, just hours before Peter would deny Jesus. We call it the upper room discourse. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples? In John 13, verses 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, listen, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Peter heard that. He's writing this down. And just in case there's someone in the room on either side of this desk that says, I'm pretty good at this. I mean, this is a hard sermon, but I... I saw it hitting other people in the room. And I, I, I try to do good at this. And, I, and by God's grace, it's a burden of mine as a Christian. I'll say, well, praise the Lord. But the sermon's still for you. In the spirit of what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in at Macedonia. Well, listen to this. But I still urge you, brethren, excel still more. You want to hear an understatement in closing? The impossible is possible. What might need to happen this morning is repentance and confession. Lord Jesus, thank you for these final verses of 1 Peter chapter 1 in this study. And we thank you for the gospel, which had to be mentioned in all four of these reminders. Now, Lord, some of us are, re- are wired to remember those ten reasons not to like someone. But I pray that forever they will go into a shallow grave in the backyard, buried by these four reminders by Peter this morning, that we must love each other. We both needed rescue. We're both facing the same direction. We both hear the same command, and we both have the ability to do this. So, Lord, continue your transformation of our church family. Help us to pursue those that would normally repulse us, even if we get nothing in return. And I pray that we will be alarmed with how closely you knit together this fellowship, especially with the clouds of persecution overhead. May we love from a sincere heart, strongly. In Jesus' name we pray.